0: Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Royanong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. Which fishes commonly court their potential mates on land, can climb up mangrove trees, and dig deep burrows to lay eggs? The incredible mudskipper. Although mudskippers have made it big in some children's cartoons... Very few people really understand how unique and varied this group of fishes is. My guest today, Dr. Gianluca Polgar, is the world's foremost expert on mudskippers and an aquarium hobbyist at heart. Join us as Dr. Polgar shares his vast knowledge of the mighty mudskipper. We'll be right back after these messages.
1: Put on a perfectly possum pet party! Having an awesome birthday or adoption day celebration for your four legged friend, or just want a fun excuse to throw a fun party with your friends from the dog park? deck out your party with molly and bandit pet party accessories party products designed specifically for pets there are wearables including adjustable pet party hats bow ties and tutus the photo prop kits include funny glasses and hats the party supplies and decorations include coordinating table covers party banners cake decorations and treat bowls cups and bags everything you need
0: to create great memories and instagram worthy photos they're available in two colorful themes tropical and fireman it's a dog's life. Celebrate it with Molly and Bandit Pet Party at Molly and Bandit slash petlife. Let's talk pets on petliferadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mini on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Dr. Gianluca Polgar. Research Scientist at University of Brunei Darussalam and Mudskipper Expert. Thanks so much for staying up late for this interview, Gianluca. Hi, welcome. So I have a lot of preliminary questions, just uh, some background questions to get an, an idea of how you became interested in, in the hobby and mudskippers. How old were you when you first started keeping fish and what was your very first aquarium setup and your very first fish species?
1: Well, I I was I think only 5 years old when I had the first fish. Uh it was um I think it was a channel catfish, ictarus pontatus. It is an invasive species in Italy, I, I guess. I think I I won it maybe in a lunar park and kept it in a fish bowl and uh, but then I I I went to aquarium shops and I was absolutely fascinated by tropical freshwater fishes. Uh, my first tank was a 120 liters tank and I was I think six years old and it contained a lot of different species and uh, mostly live bearers you know like the and Corydoras catfishes and, and all, all that sort of very typical tropical aquarium fishes. So I've been keeping aquariums, paludariums, and terrariums during all my school and university years up to 13 tanks. And I, I was mostly interested by unusual, unusual fishes, such as big ears,
0: catfishes, and amphibians as well, frogs and newts. So how did you first become interested in mudskippers?
1: Yeah, I think I, I saw a photo of a mudskipper in a book when I was at school. During the years, I, however, never found them in aquarium shops, and they were almost virtually unknown in the Italian fish trade at that time. And as an undergraduate, I was looking for an idea for my MSC project, and I started to look for them in the literature. And, of course, you mean a fish out of water, you know, uh, something very weird and interesting. I found out that almost nothing was known about them at that time, and my interest, scientific interest, let's say, grew exponentially. They ended up to be my the subject of my MSC thesis, and uh, then I also found them in the, in the pet trade, before I started to rear them, and I totally fell in love with them,
0: I would say. So you currently work at the University of Brunei Dar es Salaam. Where exactly is that located? I know there's probably uh, folks listening that have no idea where you are.
1: So Brunei is a rather, well, of course, small and distant country, both from Italy and USA. It is a small sultanate, so sort of a kingdom located in northern Borneo. And in fact, Brunei is the original name of of Borneo, this huge island uh, that is the third largest island in the world, and it's uh, located right in the middle of the maritime Southeast Asia, say, east of Malaysia, more or less.
0: So, let's talk a little bit about mudskipper basics now. You've done so much work, and I was really impressed with your website. We'll, you know, we'll talk about that a little more, but how okay. many species of mudskippers are there?
1: The answer uh, depends on the definition of, of mudskipper. Thus, the subfamily, Oxuderscinae, uh, although recent findings suggest that it is no more valid, includes about 40 species and belonging to 10 genera. However, usually only those ones that regularly and volitionally come out of water are considered mudskippers. And with this latter definition, that would include 5 genera and 32 species. For sure, the most iconic medscapers are probably those of the genus Perophthalmus, or I would say, I don't know, Perius, (laughs) that include 18 species, and boleophthalmus including six species. I described one earlier this year.
0: So maybe uh, can you give us a brief description of what they look like for folks? A lot of people have maybe heard of them or seen them. They are pretty popular in some cartoons here. Can you describe maybe briefly what a mudskipper looks like?
1: Well, they are gobies. All the genera of mudskippers in their scientific names are terms which refer to their eyes. So, I mean, the pretty most obvious thing in in a Mutskibar is their eyes. They are very dorsally positioned eyes, very big eyes, uh, frog-like, I would say, and usually relatively large heads and uh, uh, limb-like pectoral fins. Well, they come out of water. This is the most obvious thing.
0: Where in the world can Mutskibars be found? They have a rather large distribution.
1: In fact, the whole distribution of the subfamily is very well represented by the distribution of, uh, of the genus periophthalmus. It is distributed from the east coast of Africa, eastward to uh, Pacific Ocean and, uh, and the French Indies. So it's a huge distribution uh, in terms of longitude uh, range. And in terms of latitude in our range, They go from the Red Sea, the northern uh, Gulf in India, and uh, southern Japan, and south to southern Africa and um, southeast Australia. So it's a rather large
0: uh, distribution. Okay, so primarily Australia, Asia, and Africa? Yeah, more or less,
1: yes. And yes, of course, there is uh, one single species found on the west coast of uh, Africa, so Atlantic Africa.
0: Where do most of the mudskippers in the aquarium hobby come from?
1: Well, I guess it depends on the markets. In Italy and USA, as I can say from the feedback I received from there, most species in the aquarium trade come from West Africa, the Atlantic mudskipper, as I just said, Perifthalmus barbers, from Vietnam, Perifthalmus domes radiatus. From India, Pyreophtalmus norum radiatus, or Indian mudskipper. From Thailand and Singapore, Pyreophtalmus uh, variabilis, Pyreophtalmus gracilis. And some other species might occasionally be found in a market, such as the giant mudskipper, Pyreophtalmus schlosserai, the herbivore, Polyophtalmus bodarti*, sometimes called the dragon goby and uh, closely related species such as Oxoderchus dentatus, Crocodile goby, and Peripetalmus, and um, Sudapocryptus Sudocru- elongatus, the elongated goby, but usually these latter ones are more uncommon. And uh, muskipers are still not very popular and they often uh, are misidentified and sold
0: with different inconsistent names in the pet trade. So what kind of environmental conditions do they live in, in general?
1: Well, most of mosquito species live in soft-bottomed uh, intertidal habitats, it means along coast and coastal habitats. Typically, they live in tropical intertidal ecosystems such as tidal flats and mangrove forests. Uh, however, they can also occur in a variety of different habitats, for example, along the um, lower tracts of rivers. Uh, river banks, and even inside freshwater swamps, and sometimes in, on sand flats, even on rocks and some Pacific islands. However, all mudskipper species always need soft sediments to dig their burrows. And in terms of climatic conditions, I mean, they are distributed in tropical, subtropical, even in some places in temperate regions, such as southern Japan. Some species, for example, overwinter. Well, in general, the chemical and physical conditions in, in such habitats are extremely variable during the day, so it's a bit difficult to to say anything more specific than this.
0: So, I guess for in terms of us, uh, maybe temperature ranges and salinity range, they can go from fairly cool to warm. And then, how about what about salinity?
1: Salinity, well, it is extremely variable and it varies uh, in different species. Uh, for example, some species can be found in very terrestrial conditions and then, of course, nearly fresh water, such as Pyrifthalnus berberi in uh, Papua New Guinea and Australia. But these particular fish is, for example, found also in brackish conditions. So it is very Heurea I mean, it, it can live in, in many different salinity conditions. Some few species, such as Zappa confluentus, have only been found in freshwater. Others, almost exclusively in freshwater, such as Perifthalmodon septon radiatus, and others in almost full seawater, such as Bodifthalmus pectin rostris. Some species, uh, for example, such as um, Perifthalmus minutus, can live uh, on salt flats in barrows that are so infrequently covered by high tides that can contain water at more than 70 ppt salinity. In general, however, species living in middle, high, uh intertidal habitats, such as perifthalmus variabilis, perifthalmus gracilis, live in extremely variable conditions due to the occurrence of you know, rain spells, the action of tides, and, of course, the daily, weekly, or seasonal variations of, of these factors, spring tide, mid-tide, monsoons, and so on so forth.
0: So, in general, a lot of them have a fairly wide tolerance of salinities.
1: Well, yes. In general, yes. As I said, in typically um, high to mid-intertidal Zooms, uh, salinity in tide pools during low tide, can be as low as zero and as high as 40 to 50 ppt. So, yes, in general, they are adaptable to different salinity conditions. They found that the least stressful conditions for them is about around 15 ppt, something
0: like that. Let's talk a little bit about their uh, biology and physiology because they're really, yeah. again, Very unique. I guess the one first question is how long, on average, I know there's a lot of different species, but on average, would you say mudskippers can stay out of water? And how are they able to do it?
1: Oh, okay. One thing is what is their tolerance? And here, a lot of different factors can determine the tolerance. And one thing is how much time do they spend out of water in, uh, in natural conditions? I mean, experimental conditions can be fairly different than natural conditions, right? In general, you would see that a typical skipper would frequently shuttle back and forth, rather different conditions uh, in terms of microhabitat. I mean, very small uh, changes in, uh, and, but frequent changes in uh, both in terms of time and space. So. There are reports of miteskippers which remained alive for more than a couple of days on a moist substrate and in humid still air, but not many studies, in fact, uh, had been conducted on, on these. Uh, maybe, perhaps, surprisingly, in, in uh, on this aspect of their physiology. I, for example, recently conducted some studies on their temperature, high temperature tolerance, and also water loss. I would say that the main secret of adaptation to air exposure and terrestrial. Activities in, in, in most mosquitoes probably lies in the periodic use of water filled barrows and small petals of water that they can find in their habitats. Since they are relatively small, even very small amounts of water, and they allow, allow them to moisten the skin and excrete metabolic wastes during low tide. And they are also very mobile. And, and uh, as I said, uh, in their habitats, conditions can vary drastically with time and space in very short amounts of time and in very short amounts of space. So you can have a puddle here and totally dry conditions there. And, you know, within a matter of hours, everything becomes flooded or it's baked into the sun. So we still need to better understand how do they regulate and manage their time in this mosaic of very different conditions they can experience during low tide.
0: Okay. But in, I guess, just a real basic question. So if they're in a, a tank and they're out of water for 5, 10, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, that's not a very long time. right? No, now. no, no. It's not a big deal no, for yeah. them. No, okay.
1: definitely not. Well, of course, if you are blowing them with a fan, you know, and then uh, and they, you know, are baking and under under infrared
0: lamp, that would change a lot. <laughs> sure. Okay. You talked a little bit about their fins. Can you explain how they're able to move around on land?
1: Matskippers exhibit a rather remarkable variety of movements, of, of locomotory behaviors, so of movements uh, while, while out of water. The most typically observed ones are the jump behavior, of course. They, they just bend their bodies and then extend them rapidly like springs, and uh, the speed and acceleration they can reach is comparable to frogs. And uh, there is the so-called crutching behavior, Since they seem to walk like on crutches, basically they drag their body forward with their pectoral fin while while sustaining the body weight with their pelvic fins. And in some cases, some species also arch their body in in a vertical plane, which is pretty unusual for a fish. And then there is the perching behavior. They can attach to vertical surfaces pretty well. The climbing behavior, which is a combination of perching and crutching, so they can move uh, vertically. And then there are um, yeah, some variants. For example, the skating behavior, they can just slide on very wet substrates. Some behaviors are performed on the surface of water, like the surfing behavior. They can skip uh, across the surface of water like flat stones, a behavior which is similar to some flying fishes, exosated flying fishes. So there are a lot of different ways they can move around.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting, and I'm sure that's why some of the cartoons have made a lot of use of, uh, of mudskippers. One question before we take a quick break. Uh, I understand they can tolerate very high ammonia, and a lot of it's because they're living in areas that have a lot of really bad or harsher conditions. How high levels and how is it possible that they can live with such bad ammonia
1: well, this is a pretty complex question. Ammonia in general are rather toxic for the brains of vertebrates when they build up in the blood. Although, apparently, different mechanisms take place in matskippers' brains, as, as they found. Matskippers can tolerate concentrations to up to 450 micromolar concentrations of ammonia, which is something like more than 4 milligrams per liter, which is rather uh, high tolerance, and they can tolerate that for hours or days. Of course, there is a, there is a lot of variation between different species, as, as always, for example, but, and only a few species have been uh, studied in, in this respect, for example, uh, genera of perophthalmus and bolostalmus. Ammonia tolerance is probably related to the capacity of living in, in small amounts of highly polluted water during low tide, uh, such as, for example, inside burrows or in tide pools. Which probably share with uh, with other aquatic gobies living in similar habitats during low tide. As in other fishes, their main excretory organ is the gills. So, as in, in other fishes, kidneys are not involved in, uh, in excretion. And gills, of course, are only partially functional while out of water. Therefore, the high tolerance to ammonia loading while underwater in mudskippers reasonably is a pre adaptation to tolerate the buildup of ammonia occurring while out of water, due to the fact that, a as I said, the gills cannot really efficiently excrete ammonia while out of water. Several different strategies of ammonia tolerance and excretion can be found in different mosquito species and even in the same species. One strategy is to slow down the buildup while they are out of water. One strategy is to chemically transform toxic compounds in, into non-toxic compounds such as some amino acids. And also obtain energy while out of water. Others uh, include making the skin less permeable to ammonia and even excreting acids in small amount of water. And They can modify the pH of a small amount of waters, for example, when, when inside the burrows, to facilitate uh, ammonium ion excretion and inhibit ammonia intake in, uh, in high ammonia loading conditions. For example, Ferestamodon schlosseri is able to excrete ammonia even at a pH 9, which is rather high, so alkaline conditions. Other mascarpins can concentrate ammonia in their tissues to reduce the rate of ammonia intake. Uh, for example, Bolephtalmus bodarte, the dragon goby. They also found that after eating, there is a partial synthesis of urea, which is less toxic than ammonia, but they still mainly excrete non-urea ammonia compounds. Most interesting, in 2007, they found that Bolephtalmus schlosseri is able to excrete water solutions from the gills. While out of water with extremely high concentration of ammonia, uh, more than 90 micromillimolar, which is something like 990 milligrams per liter. In a way, they can somehow pee from the gills while out of water, which is pretty amazing.
0: That is. That's great. I have a lot more questions. I want to talk to you a little bit about Mudskipper reproduction, maybe a little bit more about their eyes, and then about keeping Mudskippers for uh, folks that may want to consider keeping yeah. them. But let's take a short break and we'll continue our discussion with Mudskipper expert Dr. Gianluca Polgar after these messages from our sponsors. back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Dr. Gianluca Polgar from University of Brunei Dar es Salaam. So um, you gave us a lot of really good information. Before we talk a little bit about reproduction and about what folks need to know to keep mudskippers, let's talk about their eyes a little more. They have really, as you mentioned, kind of frog-like eyes. They can do a lot of things with their eyes. Can you tell us a little bit more about their eyes?
1: The first and most remarkable fact maybe is that, even, even if it is a bit debatable, is that they apparently do not see very well underwater. They seem to be seeing much better while out of water. Their eyes have modified corneas and lenses relative to other gobies and are rather well adapted for vision in air. Uh, they're even specialized for vision in air both at short and long distances. Indeed, it is very difficult to make scientific observations, for example, of their amphibious behavior, since it is extremely difficult to observe them without being observed when out of water. Even the slightest movement would be captured by them. They have uh, modified eye muscles, which allow to completely retract their eyes into special pockets of skin beneath them. These pockets are called dermal cups and probably have a similar function uh, to our eyelids, so they are unique structures among fishes, so they could be called as pseudo eyelids. These of course allow them to moisten the eyes' surface while, while out of water. Interestingly, it, it seems that the extreme dorsal position of their eyes as in fact other features of their body, which are already dorsally positioned in other gobies, is a secondary effect of the accelerated development that they experience during the very rapid metamorphosis from from larvae to juveniles living on the the substrate and then coming out of water. So since they have to to metamorphose so rapidly before the change of the tide brings them out of the intertidal zone, this acceleration of the dorsal migration of the eyes might have produced this pretty unique effect of extremely
0: dorsal position, dorsally positioned eyes. They can also move them independently to a degree, right?
1: Yes, well, they can retract them independently, I'm not really sure of this uh, independent orientation of them. I never made specific observations about that. Even even if it's a bit of common sense, I think.
0: Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about uh, the reproduction, which I found really fascinating. I had, uh, I think I mentioned to you a while back, I had mudskippers in a hundred gallon tank, and one day they just started digging into the sand really aggressively. And I read up a little bit and learned they had some really interesting methods for uh, breeding. Can you tell us, you know, briefly a little bit about how they court each other? And also how they, um, you know, actually breed and dig their burrows, all that sort of thing.
1: Oh, okay. Breeding behavior is almost unknown in most landscape species. In the few species where some scientific observations have been made, the life cycle is pretty similar. As all gobies, they dig burrows. Most gobies dig burrows. They not only dig burrows to breed they also dig burrows as a part of their territorial behavior. So they, they usually have rather restricted home ranges around a point of reference, a spatial point of reference, and this point of reference is usually the burrow. But this is not true in all species. For example, in some species, such as Pyrostanus crassus pilis, burrows are observed only during the reproductive activity, I mean the breeding. This being said, I mean, breeding was observed in a tank only in a handful of cases three or four documented cases, and not the whole life cycle, only a part of the breeding behavior. The only whole life cycle I'm aware of uh, was observed in Thomas modestus in the 70s, and uh, they were artificially fertilized eggs. So the life cycle of a mudskipper is very similar to, to that one of many related groups of gobies. They lay their eggs inside the burrow and then the larvae hatch and they have a pelagic larval phase. So they live offshore, possibly, probably, no one knows for sure, but they live in water, so in, in, the, column, in the water column. And then there is a, a recruitment phase when they come back to the intertidal zone. A settlement phase where they become during metamorphosis bentonic, so they relate to the substrate, and then they come out of water and they become uh, juvenile metamorphosed mosquitoes.
0: Can you uh, maybe mention a little bit of how they court each other, and also what the burrows look like? Because that's, I think, was really interesting. You know yeah. how they uh, lay their eggs and all that, and how they maintain the eggs in the burrows.
1: Yeah the eggs uh, the eggs are laid in all the observed species are laid on the ceiling of a dome shaped chamber which is filled with air so the level of oxygen inside the burrows is uh, almost zero during, uh, especially during high tide, uh, but also during low tide. So the eggs could not develop inside the burrow if mudskippers don't bring air inside this chamber and they maintain it regularly by shuttling back and forth uh, during low tide and bringing um, a bubble of air keeping them in their mouth and throat. This behavior had been described, was described in uh, 1998 for the first time, and is absolutely typical of mudskippers, would say unique. And it is part of their air-gulping behavior. So mudskippers gulp bubble of air and use the opercular pouches, the mouth and the throat as a sort of uh, air-breathing organ uh, while out of water. And this is, of course, a pre-adaptation to this uh, parental care behavior to allow for development inside these anoxic burrows.
0: Can you tell us also a little bit about you know, the courtship behavior and, and, I guess, some of the territorial behaviors? Because I think that's, that's fairly interesting, too.
1: Okay. As adults, all medskeepers are territorial, as far as we know. There are some exceptions, in fact. For example, Periphtanus pressus pilus is uh, territorial on, only during the reproductive period, apparently. Daily migrates with a tidal cycle from the pioneer shore, from the vegetated pioneer shore, the trees of mangroves, to the mudflats, to the open mudflats when the tide is ebbing, and then back to the trees when it is flooding. So they are just aggregating on the roots and trees when the tide is high, and then they scatter across the mudflats to feed when the tide is low and apparently do not exhibit territorial behaviors. But when the male digs the reproductive barrow, then territorial behaviors are are observed. Apart from this case, in general, all the observed behaviors of muskippers suggest the presence of of strong territoriality, which usually is organized, as I said, around the the barrow, as a point of reference and therefore rather limited home ranges. Tidal migrations of individuals were also observed in other species, for example, Periphthamus argentilineatus. So we are still not really sure about how many species are really territorial during the whole adult life or only during uh, reproduction.
0: Can you describe maybe the actual behaviors? What do they do? How do they act?
1: In terms of courtship, in terms of territorial behaviors?
0: Yes, Uh uh-huh.
1: Okay, in terms of courtship, well, the courtship and the territorial or aggressive behaviors are very similar. They both have elements in common, such as uh, fin displays, uh, gaping, movement of the heads, changes in the coloration of the snout for example. And in fact, in several instances, they are almost identical, but very difficult to distinguish. And, uh, well, of course, all skippers make a frequent use of their dorsal fins, first and second dorsal fins, to display. And all these interactions take place, obviously, out of water. So in general, matskippers in a tank exhibit uh, high levels of aggressive behaviors. It is, uh, in general, a uh, good thing not to overpopulate the, the tank. I would say that in a tank of uh, of one meter uh, times half a meter in terms of area, only three to four uh, medium size uh, pair of mud mudskippers can be kept. Uh, let's say five to seven cm.
0: That's a great a segue into uh, keeping mudskippers. We're gonna talk a little bit about what would be requirements for uh, folks that were interested in keeping mudskippers. So, what what about since there's, it's probably difficult to sex them? When you say three to four in that area, does it regardless of sex, or does it matter?
1: The sex, I mean, both females and males are aggressive. So they are both intraspecifically, I mean, within the species and even amongst different species, they often exhibiting aggressive behaviors, both in females and, and in males. So sex does make a difference. Mask keepers are, are usually not sexually dimorphic. I mean, the sexes are pretty similar. So it's not really straightforward to tell sexes apart in general, with the exception of a few species. A good idea would be to reduce the visual interaction. So all sorts of barriers, vertical barriers, uh, logs or whatever, are a good idea in general to limit the frequency of these aggressive encounters.
0: So what would you suggest for someone that's maybe able to find mudskippers at a specialty store or maybe even get them online and wanted to keep them? What's a, a good aquarium setup, water quality, You know, what would you recommend? Mutscubus, of course,
1: I mean, is a bit general term. <laughs> it includes a lot of species, as I said, and uh, different species may be rather different in terms of needs and requirements. In general, I would say that, first of all, all Mutscubus available in a pet trade have been captured in a wild, And this must be kept in mind. No one is providing artificially Mutscubus bred in captivity. So, mudskippers usually come from wetlands which are highly endangered, such as mangrove forests, and they certainly suffer from habitat destruction. So, it is a good idea if you want to rear a to be rather in a, careful about how to rear it, because, I mean, to be highly responsible in terms of its needs, because it is something that we have taken in the wild. This being said, in general, matskipas are, as we said, pretty hard fishes. And these, as you may know, might be their curse, like for goldfishes, right? Matskipas have been kept in in all sorts of conditions, from pure freshwater to full seawater, with uh, floating uh, pieces of logs in normal aquaria and in very, uh, of course, inappropriate conditions for their biology. I would say that aquariums in general are not suitable for mud skippers. Only paludariums should be set up. The ideal condition would be to provide a very thick layer of mud substrate, extremely fine sediments in general. This is because otherwise the, the burrows would collapse out of water and when they are flooded, it is ideal to provide simulation of tides So an excursion of the level of water so that the substrate is periodically submerged. If not, at least 50%, I would say, of the substrate should be exposed. And uh, it is not a good idea to produce slopes of any kind because uh, they would collapse sooner or later, whatever barrier you put in between. So flat and thick exposed substrates, I mean, very fine substrates, and you may perhaps provide some pools of water instead of large amounts of water. Filtering is totally useless because uh, usually, on one hand, musculies can tolerate really harsh conditions. On the other hand, if you provide these type of substrates, such as mud and very fine sediments, usually the, the bacteria inside the substrate can really metabolize the wastes in the substrate and in water. The most important thing I would say is, yes, providing exposed substrate and wet air Wet and hot air, Uh, muscovers can readily, I mean, slowly become ill. Their immunitary system can depress very rapidly if the air is dry and the temperature is lower in air than in water. So we always suggest to treat them just as uh, tropical frogs. So the air must be moist and at least 26, 27 degrees to 30 degrees. But this is, of course, very, very general for different species.
0: Okay, so for the U.S. folks, upper seventies to low eighties, maybe or mid eighties degrees Fahrenheit.
1: Fifty percent. Okay.
0: Water no, that, okay, so about fifteen PPT roughly, fifteen parts per thousand. Yes. 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 Just normal lighting. Just uh, you know, no, uh, normal uh, yeah, lighting. lighting
1: is fun. not really important. Uh, I would say uh, twelve hours light, twelve hours uh, darkness uh, period. There are mudskippers which are uh, inhabiting mud flats and are better adapted to high intensity levels of light and other of illumination and other ones instead live in the forest and then prefer shadow. In general, for example, Bole is living on exposed unvegetated substrates because it feeds on a film, on the biofilm of algae and other materials they can find on exposed mat and usually um, are in full light. Why Instead, for example, periophtalmas and periophtalmadon are carnivores and are usually living in vegetated areas. So they might prefer shadow. with exceptions, of course.
0: Okay, so bottom line, the hobbyist that is interested should do a lot of homework, maybe check your website out and see what the specific requirements are. So in terms of, I guess, feeding, you talked a little bit about that. In general, I know there's a lot of different species, but in general, for many of the common Asian and African mudskippers that are in the hobby, what's a good general feed?
1: Okay, there are carnivores, there are herbivores, there are omnivores. So the diversity is really high. Most mudskippers that can be found in a pet trade are periophtalamus, and all periophtalamus species, to our knowledge, are carnivores. And they are opportunistic feeders. So they would feed anything they are provided with. So I have not any particular recommendations. I mean, I would say bloodworms or whatever. They would eat crickets, flies, shrimps. Any sort of animal-origin food, and well, instead, well, bolaspalmas are much more tricky. Bolaspalmas—they scrap the biofilm on the surface of the mud, and then uh, it can be tricky. They can be tricky to be fed. I have heard of someone feeding them with animal food, but of course, is not checking then uh, what is their condition, for example, in terms of of the liver, you know. <laughs> So they might accept animal food, these guys, but they are originally herbivores and they, they almost exclusively feed on diatoms found on the surface of the mud. And they might not be extremely healthy if fed with, with animal food.
0: You but. know, I've got so many more questions, but uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. I really appreciate your spending the time with us, Gianluca, and also That's I'd right. like to thank our producer, Mark Winter, as well, for making this show possible. My Gianluca, pleasure. did you have any final words or information that you'd wanted to uh, tell our listeners?
1: Apart from the fact that they should always be uh, reared with extreme responsibility, I mean, as I said, there are uh, reports of uh, sound emissions. I mean, I personally described the first record of acoustic communication between mudskippers while out of water, which is the first record for fishes in general. But there are reports of sounds that can be heard also by the human ear. So it would be interesting for anyone who is rearing them to listen to them. Possibly they can hear something.
0: So maybe one day you're going to be uh, our uh, Mudskipper uh, translator.
1: (laughs) Yeah, possibly so. Who knows?
0: Well, thank you very much again, Gianluca, for joining us.
1: Okay, my pleasure, my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Please be sure to check out Gianluca's great Mudskipper website. The link will be on his Aquarium Mania webpage. I encourage all of you to visit my Aquariumania blog on Pet Life Radio. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D R R O Y at petliferadio.com. If you're ever in Florida, please be sure to visit the Florida Aquarium in Tampa, one of my favorite aquariums. And if you are still looking for that perfect holiday gift, consider our novel, and Animal Life, inspired by my crazy veterinary school days. Go to ananimallife.com to learn more. Until next time, please visit your local aquarium stores and keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy, and keep a lookout for amazing mudskippers. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.